Welcome to Lab the Podcast. We share time with people whose lives and work are helping re-enchant a world flattened by the fiction that we are alone and in the center. I'm grateful you're here for the conversation and invite you to join us in pursuit of more life and beauty. Lab the Podcast starts right now. Welcome to Lab the Podcast. I'm grateful that you're here for this conversation. We are in the holiday season, and now more than it may be any time in the year, we experience collectively moments of enchanted reality. For just a short time, it seems that the cracks in the ceiling of our secular age get just a little bit wider, and transcendence kind of peeks through. The story of incarnation appears, and it resonates deeply with us. It stirs our imagination imagination and that sense of wonder. And for this season, all of that stuff that separates us starts to give way to the power of love binding us together and allowing us to share in the fullness of life. And sharing in the fullness of life means experiencing both joy and pain. And as we head into the holidays, I wanted to create a little bit of space for us to give voice to that part of our shared experience that during this season can be ignored, it can be overlooked, and maybe even covered up for a variety of different reasons. But greater understanding around the painful part of this season and our stories can deepen our capacity to allow the love of God to appear in and through our lives. And that's important. My next guest is a licensed professional counselor. She's in the Pacific Northwest helping people uh, walk through their grief and their trauma. And she's going to help us get our minds and hearts around that subject as well. Teresa Hunt works with clients in the areas of trauma and grief and loss, PTSD, depression, and anxiety. And in addition to her specialized training in trauma and grief and loss, Teresa has a personal story that allows her to join people in these places uh, with deep understanding and compassion. Teresa's gift to meet people in that strange but sacred place where the tears are falling is a grace of God. And I'm so grateful for the opportunity to share time time with her. Teresa, thank you for agreeing to have this really important conversation with us, especially as we're crossing the threshold into that holiday season. It's it's that time of year where our families are coming back together. Some people are alone and some people for the first time are entering a season where they are experiencing a new uh, chapter in their story that's with grief. So thank you so much for making space for it. Yeah, it's my pleasure to be here. Thank you. Well, a few months ago, uh, we started to see signs of the holiday season appear. You know, the stores roll it out and advertising starts to push that stuff. And Spotify fills with Mariah Carey music and all the the, the Christmas stuff starts <laughs> to happen to us. And s- for some of us, it's our favorite time of the year. And there's so much to celebrate, which is all true. And at the same time, there's that shadow side that, as I said, can be overlooked or rushed past, maybe covered up. And that can be true until you're in it and until you're experiencing it the first mm-hmm. time. This morning, we're recording this uh, conversation on the on the morning after a tragedy in Wisconsin. I know that there's been tragedy mm-hmm. uh, after tragedy, even the last couple of weeks in several of our communities. And so when you're in it, everything shifts. And I'm wondering if you can help frame for us uh, that paralleling experience that begins to happen as we move into the holiday season. As you're working with clients, uh, is there a theme that starts to emerge that parallels all of that joy and celebration that all of us are feeling and spinning around there? What is happening maybe behind closed doors as you meet with clients as people who are suffering from grief or tragedy start to move into this time of year? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I love the holiday season. It's so full of magic. And like, it just seems like the magic hangs in the air of the holiday season. And, um, but there, like you said, there is that, that darker side to it. And it's, it's when people have lost loved ones, or they've gone through trauma, or they don't have family around, or they're by, they're alone. The holiday season really shines a light on the fact that they're suffering. And it, it makes that suffering, it kind of expands it exponentially because they don't have, you know, because like you said, the fam- the holidays are all about the families getting together and the fun of the season and, and all of that. And when you're missing a family member or you've 
been alone, you know, it, it really just kind of brings that to the forefront in an excruciating way. Yeah. My hope maybe for, because of that, it was, like I said, to create some space in this conversation to, to, to give voice to that paralleling reality because some of us are experiencing it. We don't quite know what to to make of it because it's our first time in that space mm-hmm. or maybe we're traveling this season. I mean, the last two years with COVID have yeah, been so right. devastating that a lot of people's realities are different this year than it was a year ago or two years ago. And so I want to give voice to that thing that we're feeling, but also deepen our capacity to love. And for the community, everybody who's listening to this podcast to just kind of expand our capacity to let uh, love help us overcome fear or maybe the uncertainty that buffers us from uh, leaning into those experiences within ourselves or with other people, Uh, again, Mm -hmm. because they're uncertain, unsettling. Uh, And so I'm going to ask some questions that probably seem really basic. Uh, There may be the obvious things that we need to say, but I think so many of us go, I don't know really how to approach this. So I get to just Mm -hmm. ask some of those questions. I know we're going to draw from your professional experience, but also uh, I know that your personal experience informs the work that you do, obviously who you are. In this conversation, Mm -hmm. your life changed dramatically 11 years ago, almost 11 years ago, uh, when you experienced sudden tragedy and loss. And I wondered if we could start by just uh, hearing your story so that we can have the backdrop of both your professional experience, but also that personal story in mind as we talk. Would you be willing to kind of share a little bit of the story just to give us that backdrop? Yeah, absolutely. It will be um, actually 11 years in January, this upcoming January. So it's January 22nd, 2011, which was a, it was a Saturday morning, beautiful blue skies, you know, the crisp cold air from the January weather. Um, And my family had been out uh, geocaching, um, kind of this adventure where you, you search for uh, kind of, kind of like a treasure hunt so to speak. Anyway, they were out on the back roads around where we lived at the time. And um, my, my husband at the time and our two children were driving and they were hit uh, T-bones and uh, the, or my two children were killed instantly. And um, I, I remember that day I was home because I'd had a photo shoot earlier that day and I was home and I remember thinking that they were late and they were running late. And, and then I remembered my, my husband had said he was going to go to the store and and pick up lunch on the way home. And about the time I started realizing, okay, they're even late from that. I got a phone call from my brother-in-law. I don't remember much about the phone call other than him telling me that there had been an accident and that they were coming to pick me up. And, um, and to be ready when they got there. And uh, I asked about the boys. He wouldn't answer me. And I remember nothing from that point until they knocked on my door. And um, they ended up taking me to the hospital where uh, my husband had been uh, rushed to the hospital. They brought Life Flight in to take him up to the hospital in Portland because um, we were in a small town at the time. And it wasn't until I was sitting because I asked the nurses, I asked the the lady who you know checked me in at the hospital about the boys. Everybody could tell me what was going on with my husband, but nobody could tell me what was going on with my boys. And even though my brother-in-law had tried to tell me, my brain wouldn't accept it until I was sitting in an emergency room um, and I watched a train of medical professionals walk in the room. There was a doctor. There was a couple of EMTs from the accident site. There was the hospital chaplain, I think a nurse or two. And when they walked in the room, I knew that the boys were gone and that, yeah, my, my life changed that day forever. Um, it's never been the same. It's been a long, hard struggle. It's been painful. Um, I have an amazing support system. I wouldn't be where I am today without my family and without the support that God has given me. Um, you know, I was a I was a stay-at-home mom at the time. I'd been a stay-at-home mom for 12 years. That was my passion. All I'd ever wanted was to be a mom and to raise my kids. And so then when my marriage fell apart and I was on my own, I had to find a job. And I ended up in this dead-end kind of 
low income job that was going nowhere. And I remember one day very distinctly walking up to the to the door of work and I just felt like I was going to explode from the inside if I had to walk through that door one more time. And I, I, I just the purposelessness of my life at that point is I, I could not do it anymore. So I ended up going um, back to grad school to become a counselor. And I thought if I if maybe I could help other people who'd got lost children like I had, I could help them kind of navigate that grief. And that's kind of how I ended up in the counseling world, which to me is hilarious because I actually prefer talking and to listening. <laughs> but going through the accident, um, I learned the value of letting people tell their story. I learned the value of just sitting and listening and not filling the space and the pain with words. And it's because of the accident that I'm able to do my job. I wouldn't be able to do this job if I hadn't gone through that. It developed in me a compassion for people and for pain that I didn't have before. So I don't know if that makes any sense. No, it does. And <clears throat> I think for all of us who are hearing your story for the first time and hearing you tell it, I know like there's a I feel it in my body as you describe that phone call and as you describe waiting even the strangeness of your brain not allowing you to hear things like there's mm -hmm. a that's disruptive even now listening and I, I get to say this so many times because of the conversations we have but it, it's miraculous to me uh, that you are here and that you are doing the work that you're doing. Because I was driving over a, a bridge today, um, kind of prepping for this conversation. I was on my way, and I literally was asking myself the question, like, I don't know if I, if I would make it if I were in your shoes. And I don't, I don't know. I want to believe, like, intellectually, yes. Theologically, yes. I have everything it would need. My will would kick in. My desire to be present and to continue on and to see God redeem that story. Like, all those things at a head level I know to be true, but I don't know because I haven't traveled that road. And so it seems to me miraculous to look at you and to listen and go, I'm hearing the words you're saying and seeing you today, 11 years later, serving people and listening to their stories. But it's, it is miraculous to me that you're doing that. I don't know that it's. It was well, not me. That's for sure. I, I will tell you that when I was standing in the hospital, um, I had, I had three very distinct moments in my life or in that, in that moment in the hospital. Um, Cause when, when I first, like when I really sunk in that the accident had happened, my, my system shut down. That's what I do when I'm in pain or I'm scared. I shut down. And, um, you know, the first, when, when my brain started to reengage, the first conscious thought I can remember having was, um, that God knew when the boys were born, that their lives would be short. That was my first conscious thought. And I knew in that moment, um, that that was a like that gave me peace that at, at the moment it did several months later it made me angry <laughs> but in that moment it gave me peace because god was in control um the the next kind of moment i had uh was a fraction of romans 828 went through my head that you know the god can turn er everything good for those who who love him and i can't remember the exact phrasing that went through my head but I knew in that moment that God was going to bring something good out of this. Um, I'm still waiting for that, to be honest. I mean, there's been good along the way, but I'm still waiting to see the good. And I, and I honestly don't think I'll be able to see it, the full impact that it's had until, you know, I get to heaven and can see the ripple effects of, of this all. Um, and then the other moment I had was that I remember thinking to myself, I'm going to be real with this. I'm going to be real with my pain because I wanted, and the thought I had was I wanted people to see that God and pain could coexist in life. And that's, none of those thoughts were from me. I mean, the, um, they were my conscious thoughts, but I remember the, one of the first times I, I, publicly talked about my story I it was talking with a, a pastor and I told him those three things and he looked at me and he said that's not normal 
<laughs> and it's not like our usually our conscious thoughts when we're in that kind of searing pain is anger or fear or but to have to kind of have those God type thoughts is like I knew God was there and I knew that those thoughts were coming from God. And those those three moments have really kind of helped propel me forward through all of this. I mean, it's been a horrifying experience, but God has been with me every step of the way when I let him. Um, and there was, there was also a moment, a couple of several months later where I was sitting in my living room and I was praying. It took me months to be able to pray, but I remember sitting there and praying and, um, I just, I, re I don't, I don't remember anything about what I was praying, but I just remember this, this feeling started deep inside me and it spread throughout me. And it was just like this warm kind of feeling of peace. And that was the first time in my life I understood the Bible verse that um, the peace that passes all that surpasses all understanding. Hmm. Um, because in that moment I had, I was in agonizing emotional pain, but I had peace. and. And I had peace because it was like, because God spoke to me in that moment too. And I, I just remember very distinctly knowing that I was his and that everything was going to be okay. Maybe not on this, you know, maybe not now, maybe not, you know, on in this life, but in the next. And I don't, I don't know if I'm making sense, but it's, that was, that was one of those moments too, that I think has helped carry me when because it wasn't always that, like that. I, I eventually got very angry with God and developed a lot of anxiety and depression because I quit relying on God through the whole process. And, um, and I still struggle with that today because it's, it's hard when you go through that kind of pain then to put your trust in somebody who allowed that kind of pain. Mm -hmm. And then to be able to, to say to people, you know, yeah, it, it, it doesn't make sense. But in that moment, I understood it. In that moment, I knew that God isn't about protecting us from this life. He's about preparing us for eternity. Hmm. And I don't know. If I'm kind of going off on a tangent now. <laughs> no, it's you're touching the very thing. I mean, C.S. Lewis, the problem of pain, mm -hmm. suffering. These, I mean, these. Mm -hmm. This is the bottom of the pool, in in the sense of the depth of the Christian theology and the questions we ask of why does God allow it. Yeah. I think that's what's so interesting about you saying those two things. I wanted to be honest about my pain, and I wanted to mm -hmm. know that God and pain can coexist. I think that that. Yeah. I, I read a piece that was written about your story when you were going to go speak to a group, and uh, there there was a quote attributed to you where they said that you had experienced a sense of frustration within the church, just with the sense that we don't talk about pain and we don't talk about loss, we don't talk about this kind of shadow yeah. side of our experience with faith, and I think that's you're touching something important because as you experienced, there is a there is a knowing of God that takes place mm -hmm. in that in that dark experience of pain, in kind of the valley of the shadow of death. There is a knowing of God that we, that we don't find outside of. And I think there's something about sharing in suffering, sharing in glory. There's something there that you're giving voice to. And I really appreciate mm -hmm. the way you're doing it. I will tell you as I hear your story, you know, the impulse in me is to you know i can see you in this interview and my impulse is to say like i'm i'm so sorry for like i'm i'm immediately in your loss hearing this story as if it was 11 years ago i haven't traveled all that distance that you've traveled mm -hmm. and so that impulse in me is to to reach out and say i'm so sorry this is one of those dumb questions maybe of saying i Help me understand, as we hear people's stories, you now do this for professionally to sit and to allow mm -hmm. people to create space. How do, how, what is right? What is the right way to respond as someone shares their story? Because there's everything in me that wants to say, I'm so sorry. And yet I don't want to minimize the work that has happened and the grace of God in your life and all of the layers of your experience that have led up to this point. So help us make sense of that just as we listen, even now as an example, hearing your story and that part mm -hmm. of us that wants to go, oh, I'm so sorry. 
what what posture is the most helpful posture to take as we listen to people's story and then know how to respond? Yeah, and and honestly saying, I'm so sorry, there's nothing wrong with that um, because that's an appropriate response. You know, I as human beings, our natural inclination is to want to help. You know, we want to help. We want to make people feel better, especially in our American society where we're instant gratification. Everything feels good. We don't we don't delve into these deep, deep pockets of pain. And so when when we're faced with it, you know, often we try and, you know, happy people out of it or give them platitudes to make them feel better. And and this is one area that I get very soapboxy about because some of the things people said to me were like there was one lady um at the at the um reception after the memorial service this lady came up to me and she said to me they're in a better place and i felt like i like physically felt like i had been punched in the gut because it, it didn't matter that they were in a better place they weren't with me and that's what i was grieving and so we have this tendency to come in and, and, and give these platitudes that are actually hurtful and minimizing because we want to make people feel better, but it's not about making people feel better. It's if, if that's like, I, I, sometimes when I speak, I, I say, if you want to say something to somebody, ask yourself two questions. Are you saying this to make yourself feel better? Or are you saying this to make them feel better? Mm. And if you answer yes to either question, don't say it. Mm. Mm. because it's not about making them feel better. It's about making somebody feel heard. Mm. And that requires shutting up and listening, which mm. is really, really hard for us as, as human beings when we want to help and we want to, you know, soothe people and we want to make them feel better. And we're, especially if we're uncomfortable with the pain ourselves. And that's what kind of what I've noticed most of the time is when somebody is in front of you and they're in pain, a lot of that, wanting to say the right thing comes from being uncomfortable with their pain. Mm. And so you have to learn to become uncomfortable with their pain and, and recognize they have a right to feel their pain. The only way that they're going to feel better is to go through their pain and to move through it and to feel it. And so one of my favorite things that people said to me was again, at the reception, after the memorial service, a whole bunch of people had like come up and were talking to me. And at one point, kind of the people parted and there was this woman standing there who was a friend of well, a friend. And she just had this horror stricken look on her face. And she looked at me and she said, I don't know what to say. And I like, I grabbed her hand and I said, that is the best thing you could have said to me mm-hmm. because it let me know she cared. It let me know she wanted to say something. She wanted to help but she wasn't going to try and minimize my pain with platitudes. Mm. And the Christian world is amazing at platitudes Mm. because we won't go into those deep pain places because there's some kind of, some kind of belief that once you become a Christian, the pain is gone and there's going to be no more pain in your life. And it drives me bonkers. And I think that's where that, that God and pain can coexist and I'm going to be real with what I'm going through so people can see that. I think that came from watching, like I grew up in the church. I watched this my whole life where people like would have stuff happen. Yeah, but God is good. <laughs> my brother-in-law came up with a thing that somebody said to him one day, God is good. And my brother-in-law said, yep, but life sucks. <laughs> and it's okay that life sucks. Our lives are hard. They're supposed to be hard. They're going to be hard. God never promised us an easy life. In fact, if I remember correctly in the Bible, he promised us life was going to be hard mm. and that we were going to suffer. Mm. And, and so it's like we have to be comfortable with the suffering. We have to delve in. The closest I have ever felt to God in my life was when I delved deep into that pain of losing my children and I sat with it and I turned to God in it because there was no other way I was making it through it. There was no way I was getting through the pain of child loss without God's help. I don't know how I've seen parents who don't have God and I don't know how they do it because it was the only way I was going to make it through. There was, I could not do that by myself. I needed God. I needed him and I needed his, you know, his comfort and his, you know, the support he gave me. But if I had just turned around and said, Oh yeah, life is good. God is good because you know, I'm a Christian. And pretended that I was going to be okay and survive this okay, I would never have received the support I I needed. 
And I never would have experienced that closeness with God that I had. I think it's so helpful, the, the two questions you ask. Am I saying this to make myself feel better? Am I saying this to make mm-hmm. you feel better? If either of those are true, I'm not going to say it. Uh, that most yeah. helpful thing that your friend said, I don't know what to say. You know, the, these are the things mm-hmm. that are so important as I think you're in kind of encouraging, inviting us to trust that as my friend, Paul Pastor wrote a beautiful devotional and in my favorite line, he said, even here, and it's the reality that God is with us even here, even the whole Christmas story, mm-hmm. the, the incarnation, the brilliance of this season of wonder is not that God is far off or some escape from pain. It's the incredible reality that God took on flesh and enters into these spaces. And it's, it, right. if we're willing to go into those places, we come face to face with uh, God who is there, even, even here. You said a couple of mm-hmm. times during that last answer that you gave, you said, you know, is, there was a movement through pain. And mm-hmm. I, you know, there's seasons, there's different ways of describing it. I kind of think of, of grief and pain, um, kind of like the, the ocean on the Pacific side. It's just, there's the violence of the shore right there. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just break after mm-hmm. break after break and it's a violent shore. And if you paddle out mm-hmm. a little bit, it, it starts to roll in pretty heavy, but you're outside of that, the violent breaker section. And then you get mm-hmm. kind of into the deep, which is scary, mm-hmm. and it's there, and it's no less the ocean. In fact, it's more the ocean, but you're able to exist in it in a different space, like you're united mm-hmm. with it in a different way. You're not being tossed over and over and over by it. Right. And that may not right. be a perfect picture, but I'm wondering if, uh, in your experience, are there stages of, is there some kind of... Not a everybody's story is different, but are there seasons mm-hmm. of grief that you can kind of articulate and, and say, you know, generally the experience of grief follows a certain kind of there's seasons <laughs> to it. What, what, how would you respond to that? Yeah, no, there's no grief is not predictable. There is no predicting grief. Um, you know, there's the the famous Elizabeth Kubler Ross, the five stages of grief. Well, that's actually the uh, she wrote that from the five stages of death and dying when her with her work with terminal terminally terminally ill. I can say the word um, patients and it got adapted to grief. And then um, I know David Kessler is one of her students. He has gone on to adapt it and and develop it for grief. And he's added kind of some stuff to it. But you have to recognize, yes, there's there's things that that are common for grief. Um, and, and in some ways, there are like phases that we go through. But in reality, if you try and predict grief, if you try and put it on a linear path or put it in a box that this is how it happens, you're going to be sorely disappointed. One of the best things someone said to me, I think it was a counselor said to me when I uh, when I that first year was uh yeah it was my counselor I think she said to me there are no stages of grief and it's not a linear process Mm. and so grief is very much it's like ocean waves is a great way to describe it because you know the the emotions roll like that they roll like the ocean waves like it's it's like one one minute you're going along fine and then you get hit with a sneaker attack uh, and then that wave just washes over you and it doesn't matter if you're in the store or at home and there's nothing you can do but collapse and cry. And and that's like at the beginning, that's what it's like. It's like wave after wave after wave. And and if you if you force those waves to stop, if you push them aside, if you don't acknowledge them, they don't go away. If you ride the waves, if you allow them to crash over you, if you sit in the pain and the depth of it. Eventually, what happens is the waves start to space out. Mm. Um, so, you know, at the beginning, it was wave after wave after wave. And then it got to the point where I could function a little bit and the waves weren't coming quite so often and quite so hard and quite so fast. And then after a while, they would start spacing out to what was a couple of days where I could I could function for a couple of days instead of a couple of hours. And then I remember I, I put together a book. Um, the first year full of pictures I'd taken that year because I'm a photographer and and I wanted to still capture the beauty in the world 
So I put together a book with all the pictures I took that year, along with either things people have said to me that were, were helpful or things that I read that were helpful or meant something to me. And about, I don't know, three, three or four years later, um, a friend of mine had a friend who'd lost a child. And so I was packaging up this book to send to them. And it was the first time I'd flipped through the book. And I remember flipping through it and I realized, oh my gosh, look how far I have come because the pain that I was in in that, and that moment just kind of leaks off the book. I mean, you can just, it's palpable when you go through this book and you can see the pain. And I realized in that moment that I was not in the steering pain anymore. It was, it's still painful today, but it's not steering pain all the time. Like it was at the beginning and such a gradual process that you don't really recognize what's going on until you look backwards. And so um, it's grief is, it's a universal experience. We're all going to experience it. We're all going to go through it. There's very commonality, you know, there's a lot of commonalities to it. Like, you know, we all feel sad and there's a lot of physical things that happen to our body when we're going through grief and a lot of mental things and spiritual, like it affects us in every possible way that we exist as humans. It's not just feeling sad for a time. It like really impacts us. And, um, but everybody is different and every relationship is different and every grief is different. So I, I kind of, one way to describe grief is like snow. Like there's the universal phenomenon of snow that we all experience, but grief is like the individual snowflakes. Your individual grief is every individual snowflake is so very different because your grief experience is going to be so very different. And one thing I've heard a lot from clients that they seem surprised by is if they have a loss at one point in their life, and then several years later, they have another loss. They're always surprised that the second loss is so very different, hmm. but it's because their relationship was different. It's because they are at a different point in their life right now. It's because um, they have different coping skills or a different, you know, um, support system. There are so many things that impact grief that 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 inform it that that lead to the way we process it that it's such an individual experience that there is no predicting it. There is no timeline for it. There is no, you know, way to, to predict what happens every year for me, the holidays are hard every year because my son's birthday is five days, four days, four days before Christmas, the accident day is in January. And then my other son's birthday is in February. And so I've got a three month span of life just sucks. And it's gotten easier over the years. But what has surprised me is every single year is different. I start to think, okay, I've got this because I know when I know when it's going to start to hit me and I can prepare for it. And then the next year it's completely different. And I've had to have people point out to me, hey, you're coming into this difficult time of year. That might be why you're having trouble right now. Because I'm not prepared for it because it wasn't the same as last year. Mm. It's been 11 years and I'm still surprised at how different it can be like i talk about my story several times sometimes i can handle it just fine and other times i'm shaking while i'm telling the story because i'm in a different space like today is i'm shaking telling the story because you know i've been really stressed out the holidays are coming and we've had this tragedy here you know that has affected my family um my sister's friend and so it it all it all informs like it, there's no one there's you can't say grief is going to be like this and everybody's going to get through it and be fine. Yeah. It's, it's so unpredictable. And I think that's why it's so hard for us as people, as Americans, especially to handle grief yeah. because there's, there's no recipe for it. Yeah. And we want to know, we want to know when, what we have to do to make it go away. That's what I see the most with my clients. Yeah. What can we do to make it go away? How can we control it? So it's predictable. Mm -hmm. We can tame it. Yep. And it's in some ways untamable. If it's right. in, if we're looking at it through that lens, imagine the person who maybe this is year one, maybe they lost someone during COVID mm -hmm. uh, due to COVID. Mm -hmm. Maybe it's a, a tragic or sudden loss. And so maybe what are some of the, the tools that, again, knowing that we can't control it, knowing it's going to be different, knowing that it's untamable in some ways, 
what are some of the things that maybe you have learned that you that are very very important to to allowing yourself to travel that terrain of grief and not be mm-hmm. overwhelmed are there some you know biopsychosocial spiritual things that are that you can say when you work with your clients listen i know it's going to be hard but here's some mm-hmm. things that are important just as you travel this landscape here are some anchors are there any that are common to all of us or is that again so varied and so broad that you kind of have to individualize each each person's experience well, there are things that are common, but you still have to individualize each, each person's experience because everybody is different. Um, most of my clients have trouble functioning. Like for, for my, you know, an example for myself, I could put to like before the accident, I could put together a to-do list and I could accomplish a week's worth of, of things in a day. After the accident, I couldn't do that anymore. And it drove me bonkers. It, I, I could not figure out why I couldn't function on the same level I did before. And I had to learn a lot of grace for myself and recognize that I am never going to function at that level again because the emotional toll it takes for me just to get out of bed every day, even 11 years later, I'm never going to function at that level. So there's a lot of like, I'm constantly telling my clients, you need to have grace for yourself. You need to have grace for yourself. You need to have grace for yourself because they, they want to be able to function at the same level. They can't understand why they're having memory problems, why they're having trouble remembering appointments. Um, Or, you know, I live by sticky notes now. They, there's that constant recognition every single day that you cannot function at your normal level. That's one thing that has seemed to be fairly common among most of my grief clients. There's some people who can still function fairly decently. That first year, though, is such it's such a shock. Um, and let me put in a caveat here. A lot of this really does depend on the the level of your loss. For me, it was my children. So there, that's a huge loss. For some people, losing their grandparents is a huge loss. Um, but for some people losing their grandparents is not as huge. So it's, so some of what I'm saying is really speaking out of my experience of going through an extremely huge loss because it was my children, because, you know, I was very invested in their lives. The level of our relationship with somebody really makes an impact on the level of our grief. So like when my grandparents passed away, I did not experience the grief I did when my children passed away because my grandparents lived halfway across the country. I wasn't as connected with them as I had been when I was a child. Um, so it wasn't as painful. So putting that caveat in there, my first year was intensely painful. I was in shock the whole year. I mean, there's that initial shock of not being able to function, not being able to like the den- that level of denial of, I can't believe this is happening. It takes a while for your brain to really accept it. But that first year it was like being in a cloud mm-hmm. of pain. And by the second year, there's a there's a phrase in the kind of the parent grief community that the second year is harder. But that's generally because that first year you're just kind of going through the motions. But by the time the second year comes around, you've you've that 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 initial shock of holy crap, this has really happened to me has worn off. And now you're dealt with left with the reality of it. And by the second year, that reality really sinks in and hits hard. And, and so for me, the second year was harder. Some people, the second year is not as hard. I forgot the question I was supposed to be yeah, answering. No, you, you touched <laughs> on it. Kind of go on, I no, go off on my tangents and then no, I it forget was, where I'm going. It was good trying to make sense of just, you know, how do we not only ourselves begin to walk through that and do Mm -hmm. and try to stay buoyed as we travel that landscape. Um, that, that was part of it. Part of it is my thinking of how do we walk alongside people and know what is, is helpful. But I think you opened the door to a different question. If I can ask it, um, and part of what I'm thinking is just you you mentioned the loss of grandparents, the loss of children, obviously, the difference of that. I can't imagine your kids were young, you know, when you you only mm-hmm. had a short, short time with your kids. Um, and I'm wondering 
how what how do you make sense of your relationship now you know part of the the beauty of the christian community is that that life is life continues there is eternal life and there is an unseen and a seen and we exist mm-hmm. in that strange already not yet reality and i wonder you know i heard another a, a hospital chaplain friend of mine say that you know one of the fears of uh, for us as people in the idea when we're grieving our own death is that we'll be forgotten and i'm wondering mm-hmm. you know as a parent i think in year 2 and year 3 um how do you help people make sense of how to have a relationship with someone we've lost where they they're not forgotten and yet they're mm-hmm. you know you're there and you still have a relationship as you mentioned your kids birthdays are coming up how have you learned to help people make sense of that reality that that the people who we love and are in our lives are still present with us and yet there is a difference in that relationship obviously mm-hmm. that's that's hard for us how do you help people make sense of having a relationship with someone we've lost Oh, that's a really good question. I'm not sure I have a great answer for that. Um, you know, it. I think it really comes down to the way we remember them and the way we live our lives. You know, um, every year for the boys' birthdays, I the first few years especially, I would do something specific. Like Dawson was into. Um, he was he he had an engineering mind, and he had gotten a rocket for his birthday, which he had never gotten the chance to open. And so for his, that first birthday, that would have been his 13th. So he was 12 when the accident happened. So on his, what would have been his 13th birthday, we shot off the rocket, you know, and we shot off that rocket every year on his birthday until it broke. And then we got new rockets and shot those off until we lost them. Mm -hmm. They were smaller and blew higher. And now for his birthday, I just do things that, you know, sometimes it's, it's just getting together with my family and having dinner. Like, um, it's about, you know, for the holidays, especially finding new rituals that either include the loved one in a way that, that you're comfortable with, or doesn't include the loved one in a way you're comfortable with. It's, it's, it's not necessarily about, about doing a specific thing. It's about getting through the holidays and, 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 you know, kind of getting through life in a way that makes sense to you in a way that that you can function you know it's um i wouldn't like i i couldn't move for like 2 years because i didn't want to take down my boys rooms um it really is like when we're talking about trying to maintain that relationship with with you have to really obviously redefine what relationship means because it you can't you can't have a typical relationship with someone who's gone. Mm-hmm. Um, some people, you know, I, this isn't me, but some people, you know, they see signs everywhere, you know, like I know one lady who um, um, looks for hearts and things like, you know, a ketchup stain that's shaped like a heart or finds rocks that are shaped. Like I, I've met a lot of grieving parents who, who, and they see that as their loved one trying to reach out to them or stay connected with them. Um, I, it really is what works for you. Mm. There's no right or wrong to it. There's no right or wrong to grief. Yeah. As long as you're not hurting other people in your grief process, there's no right or wrong to it. Yeah. I think that idea of shooting rockets off on the boy's birthday and, you know, and it, that it, and it, that it may change. And I hear Mm -hmm. you saying like, it's okay. Like give yourself permission to say, Hey, this year, uh, I would like to do this ritual that has been helpful for a season. And next mm-hmm. year, I don't have to have the pressure that I'm going to do that for the next 30 years. I'm going to just right. take it year by year and and trust that uh, in relationship with God and the reality that your, that your love and your memory with that person mm-hmm. it still informs and colors your life is true and real. And so honor that in a true and real way. But there's not a prescriptive way to do that. I think no, that's really. Helpful. I will say, yeah, no, and there's not. Um, I will say though, sharing memories of the boys is one of the best things that I have experienced. When when we get together and we just like they just we just they come up like 
yesterday I was over at like I'm renovating a condo right now to I you know bought a condo and renovating it because it was a fixer upper and my brother-in-law came over and he was helping me but he's an electrician and so he was helping put in some lights and stuff for me and I heard this huge crash and then a little while later I heard I'm okay and that's kind of a thing in my family because my son my youngest son um he was such a goofball but he would I would it was the same thing I would hear a thud or a crash and I would just sit and wait and then I would hear I'm okay and he would just yell it through the house and so now it's become a thing that my family does when there's a crash or we fall down or something it's it's you know we give it a pause and I'm okay and that's 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 one way we keep Devin alive you know um every time we have to put something together we talk about Dawson because he, he, he could put anything together. That kid could figure anything out. And so it, it's those little ways that, you know, giving yourself permission to talk about your kids can be hard. I remember the first, one of the first times I tried to share a story about my kids in a social setting. Um, it was, you know, a group of women, we were standing at church, we were standing around talking and, you know, as we were doing, everybody was sharing stories about their kids. And so I shared a story about mine and I watched this woman emotionally and physically back away from me like she literally took like two steps back and that was like oh it was like okay like it was a very different experience for me to have that and and so you know that's one thing if you want to help somebody who's grieving when they bring up the person who's lost Mm. listen to the story you know don't don't back away from them that's them keeping their their memories alive that's them keeping their family alive for them that's how they maintain that relationship with them is they still share stories because that that person is important to them and they have those stories to share um that's you know that that is one huge way that you can support someone is talking about their loved one i love it when people talk about my kids I think it's so brilliant what you, what you're saying. This is such a brilliant place to kind of circle and highlight that that physical reaction of the other person to back away mm-hmm. from the very thing that I hope can be more true. And I think you're helping us make it more true. I, one of the core fears, I think this is what that chaplain friend of mine was mentioning, and I feel it, is that if I were to be gone... It, it makes it gives me joy right now in the present to know that I've lived in a way that my kids and my spouse, my family, my friends will continue to look back and they'll have those moments where they'll say, hey, that this person's life touched us in such a way that we it carries on. And it's still mm-hmm. it's still a part of our conversation. They're still they, they contributed in such a way to our story that that lives yeah. on. That's such a beautiful reality. That to think that we would, because of our discomfort, not allow for that to openly mm-hmm. be part of the experience. I think that that's so helpful for me to think just if as people are willing, lean in and let that part of the story continue and mm-hmm. to continue on. And if that's us, don't be ashamed that you want to talk about it. And it's OK to talk about the person and to let the parts where their life left a mark on your life color the rest of the experiences that you're having. I think that that's good mm-hmm. and healthy. Thank you. That's yeah. that's brilliant. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I know there's that, a quote. Oh, go ahead. No, you go. I was going to, there's a quote, and I can't remember who it is. I want to say Elizabeth Elliot, but I'm not sure that's right. But she talks about this very thing, and I'm not going to, I'm not going to do the quote correctly, but she talks about, you know, it's don't, don't be afraid to mention somebody's loved one because you might make them sad or remind them that they died. They already know that they died. They're already sad. By mentioning their loved one, it's music to their ears, essentially, because you, you're reminding them that, that they are remembered. And yeah, I, I, that, I butchered the quote, but, yeah. but that's the whole premise of it. That's beautiful. The reality mm-hmm. that don't be, don't be scared of it. It's already there in that timidity, yeah. that fear to say, well, I don't want to, I don't want to poke at that. No, it's already there. It's there. That person is living the reality mm-hmm. of that. I think that's super helpful. Yeah. Yeah. I will say though, that there are times when it's too painful to talk about and to be aware of that and to be, to be you know, to kind of gauge their response. Like if, if, if you're wanting to talk about somebody's loved one and they kind of back away from you or something, recognize that it might be too hard for them in that moment yeah. and give them that space to say, okay, we don't have to talk about this now. But, um, 
but yeah, it's, it really is. I love it when people talk about my kids. Yeah. I, it happens to me a lot because I think that I just am gifted with the not knowing what to say. So I get to ask the dumb questions a lot, Mm -hmm. but is it okay to ask? Like, is it okay to say, Hey, I have, can I ask you this? Or is it okay to talk about this? Is it better to, to ask, to not ask? What do you think? I think everybody's different. I love it when people ask me questions. I will say though, I had one time, one, one person was asking me very intrusive questions that um, I should have put a stop to, but I wasn't in a place where I could. So being aware that, you know, you can go too much, too far with that. But if you just start off with, is it okay if I ask you questions, That's it. then they can, they can give you the permission because I can't give that permission for somebody else. Cause I don't know. Some people don't like to talk about it. Um, I am a talker. I love to talk about it, my kids and, um, it, it keeps them alive for me. And so I, and what I tell people is you're free to ask me any question you want. If I can't talk about it in the moment, I will tell you, but please then ask me later because I do want to talk about it. I do want to be able to answer people's questions, but there are days where it's just too hard. Yeah. And so it's just about being open with your communication and being being aware that it just might be too hard for somebody that day and that's okay. Yeah. I love it. I I think that's what I was getting at is that, that ability to ask for permission. You said it so Mm -hmm. well, like here's the best question to ask. Is it, is it okay to ask? Is it okay to talk about this? Cause I have something I would love to ask. Yeah. Hey, I know you've got clients today. You're going to see somebody Mm -hmm. in just a few minutes. So before we run out of time, as we take these next steps into the holiday season, imagine the person who is listening to this and they are themselves experiencing grief and they Mm go, I just, I feel overwhelmed. I don't know what to do. It's hard for me to make my lists, get through my day. Uh, what's one thing that you can kind of say, Hey, maybe consider this. Is it, if they don't have somebody to talk to, is it reaching out and finding somebody to talk to? Is there something that you kind of, when you meet people in their grief for the first time that you're able to say, Hey, I want to give you permission to fill in the blank as you go through the holiday season? What would you say that sometimes we're needing that permission to say, it's okay to cry. It's okay to reach out for help. What would you say? I guess it depends on this. Like, that's a very broad question. And there's, there's a, like, I I can't give just one because there's a lot of different answers to different layers of that question. Um, So I'm going to broach it for the holidays because we've got the holidays coming up. Um, But I would say if you're going through grief, it's okay to say no. Hmm. When, when the holidays come up, everybody wants to have a party. Everybody wants to invite you over to things. You know, there's there's all that kind of activity going on. And when you're grieving, it it's hard to be around people, especially around people who are happy and having fun. And it's okay to say no. It's okay to say, I'm sorry, I can't do that this year. It's if you decide and one thing I always tell my clients is if you decide to go to something, if you decide to go to a holiday party or something like that, have an escape plan. Don't don't ride with somebody because then if you need to leave, you can't. Mm drive yourself, make sure you have a way to get home. Like if, if you're there and you've been there for 20 minutes and you have to go home because you just can't cope anymore, you need to be able to get home. So have an escape plan, have a backup plan. It's okay to say no. And then the other thing I tell my clients all the time, and, and, and this is one that has worked for me and this is why I tell my clients it, but um, a lot of times leading up to the holidays, leading up to the birthdays, leading the, it's the lead up to those days that's the hardest because you're like, oh my gosh, this special day is coming. How am I going to survive it? Because you know it's going to hurt. You know it's going to be painful because it's one of those days that just shines that spotlight on the fact that you that person's not here. And I always recommend people have a plan. Have a plan for that day. How are you going to get through that day? Even 11 years later, I still have a plan for the boys' birthdays. I still have a plan for the accident day. And I have backup plans for Christmas and Thanksgiving. Mm-hmm. Because I need to know that I can survive that day. Whether my plan is needed or not, doesn't matter. I have a plan to get through the day. So for example, for Dawson's birthday this year, I'm looking into getting escape room for me and my nephews and, and my niece and to go do something fun and then go have dinner with my family afterwards. 
generally my backup plan for the holidays. Like if, if Christmas is going south and I just can't be around my family anymore because I'm grieving too hard, I will leave and go to a movie or something like that. That's, it's okay to say no, have a plan, have a backup plan. That's the best way I can answer on how to get through the holidays. Um, and then the, my, because you mentioned it, I want to throw this in there. The giving yourself permission to cry. A lot of it, like I see this with my clients all the time. They don't want to cry. They want to be strong. They don't want to fall apart. You have to fall apart. It's part of the process of grieving. And crying, there's actually scientific reasons for our tears. Um, I stumbled across this article in the Smithsonian um, website about this, this photographer who had taken microscopic pictures of tears. And she had discovered that different kinds of tears have different chemical makeup. Mm. So tears that we cry when we're cutting an onion versus tears that we cry when we're happy versus tears that we cry when we're sad all have different chemical makeup, mm. which means when we're crying tears of grief, we are literally pulling chemicals out of our body that need to be released. Mm. So giving yourself permission to cry and have that breakdown. You can do it in private if you want to. I did all of mine in private. Um, generally with prayer because that was the only way I could do them but giving yourself permission to cry it's okay to say no and have a plan well Teresa I think that's why I appreciate you so much just the professional side and the personal side being able to say hey not only is this data-based and research-based these are best practices look at this it's it's in creation itself it's in our bodies and then also I've, Mm -hmm. I've lived this I just appreciate you being willing to speak from all those those places. And I think some of us are just afraid to cry because we feel like if we go there, we'll never get out of that spot. So we say, I'm not going there because I'll never get it's, out. And it's very overwhelming. Um, I'm sorry to interrupt, but I have that with clients all the time. They say that they, they're afraid to face that feeling because they feel like they're never going to get out of it. And and I understand that because I've been there. I've been where that, that feeling is so powerful and it's so intense. And the thing is, is our emotions are transient. They never, like, we never feel the same way from moment to moment. You might feel that intense pain for 20 minutes while you cry it out, and then it's going to dissipate because you've cried it out. Our emotions wax and wane. Mm. They will not, they will not catch you and keep you in them for eternity. They, yeah. they just can't. I think that's so good. Uh, I'm so grateful for you. And I, I know we've got to wrap it up. I want to ask you this. If if people are listening, they go, man, this was so helpful to talk to Teresa, to listen mm-hmm. to Teresa. And I know insurance matters and all the things where people are listening from. People listen to this all over the country. But do you have something that you say, hey, when you do pass through the path, you know, you, yes, insurance will take me. Yes, the person's in proximity. Yes, I can meet with them. And yes, they'll take me. Once you, all those are out of the way, what's the essential thing that you would say, hey, Zach, if I'm in grieving and I'm looking for somebody that I can talk to and work with, as a friend who's in mm-hmm. this vocation, what would you say is really important as I think about a person that I want to work with? Is there a beyond insurance and do they take it and all that, but on a connection yeah. level, what's the, what do you look for that says, Hey, this is the right fit for you. Uh, when you, when you find somebody to talk to. I would say, and this is what I tell, I've had several people reach out to me and, and ask like, do you have a recommendation for a counselor and, and how do I find a counselor? And, one of the things I always tell people is make sure it's a good fit. Make sure you feel comfortable with them. It's okay to go in and meet somebody and, and say, you know what, I don't think this is working. And, and because, and I tell my clients this upon my first meeting with every client, I have a spiel that I run through. And one part of my spiel is to tell them that I can transfer them to somebody else if we're not a good fit. And, and part of that spiel is, Therapy is not going to be effective if we are not working well together. If you don't feel comfortable with me or if we've had a problem that we can't address, you know, we need to, you have to feel comfortable in therapy for it to work. Because the way therapy works is you tell that therapist your most intimate, deepest things and you have to feel comfortable. You have to feel safe in that environment. And if you don't, you're not going to be able to, it's not going to be effective. And so, Sometimes you can tell right off the bat if you meet somebody and it's not working. 
Sometimes it takes a few sessions to realize this isn't a good fit. It's always okay to say, you know what, this isn't a good fit. I have been fired by so many clients <laughs> because I am not a good fit for them. Uh, and that's okay. Yeah. It's it's okay. It's just recognizing that you need to somebody that you feel completely 100% comfortable and safe with. Yeah, that's so good. Teresa, thank you. You are a gift and this has been awesome just to to hear from you. So thank you. And I am sorry for your loss. It it it, it does. I mean, it, I've known uh, through our my family your story for years mm-hmm. and just the opportunity mm-hmm. to spend some time with you has been a real treasure. So thank you for letting us be close to your story and to hear from you. And I just am really grateful for the work you're doing in the world. So don't grow weary doing it. Uh, There's just so much life and beauty already that's come from it. So thank you. Well, thank you for the opportunity. Thanks for joining us for the conversation. We're so grateful to share this time with you. And even more than that, we're grateful you're a part of this growing movement of life and beauty. Until our next conversation, make sure you like, subscribe, follow the podcast, follow us on Instagram, check out VUVIVO.com to learn more about our work, and we'll see you back here for Lab the Podcast next time.